This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. We hear a lot about the importance of perseverance. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, they say. But that's not always good advice, is it? Sometimes perseverance is likely to pay off, but sometimes you're just banging your head against a wall, and that has costs. Sometimes you need to quit so you can do something new, so you can take the time, the energy, and the money that you're pouring into a failing endeavor and put it toward a new one that might succeed. My guest this week has a new book out called Quit, and she argues that we tend to be improperly biased against quitting. It's not that you should give up on everything, but on average, she says we tend to quit too late and to throw good money after bad in business and also in life. Annie Duke is a retired professional poker player with over $4 million in lifetime tournament winnings. She was also the runner-up on the 2009 season of The Celebrity Apprentice, losing to Joan Rivers. Prior to entering poker, she was pursuing a PhD in cognitive psychology, and since retiring from the game in 2012, she's an author and a speaker, having written books including Thinking in Bets, How to Decide, and now, out this week, Quit. Welcome, Annie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm actually now a graduate student again. I just enrolled. Oh, you are? Yeah, I'm going to be defending my dissertation going to say January or February of this year, somewhere around there. Oh, that's great. In, in psychology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With um, Phil Tetlock. You might know him. Yes. He's, yes. The, He's the, amazing. The, so, the, the forecasting yeah. guy. Yeah. So what happened yep. was we were collaborating on some work on forecasting, actually mm-hmm. uh, training novices to be better forecasters. And um, we did a whole bunch of studies and they turned out really interesting. And he said, you know, Given that you left way back when, literally ABD, just all but having defended, why don't you just write this up and we can turn it into a dissertation? And oh, that's, I was that's like, exciting. Oh, okay. So I am now officially a graduate student. So that, that that actually gives us an interesting place to start because, I mean, you've made a, a couple of notable career decisions about quitting. I mean, you know, first, you know, some 20 years ago, leaving that PhD program in order to go become a professional poker player, which is a pretty unusual career choice, and then deciding to leave poker about a decade after that in 2012. What makes you especially good at, at knowing when to quit? How did you develop your view on quitting that ultimately led you to write this book? Yeah. So first of all, let me just say I'm, I'm actually quite bad at quitting. I mean, because everybody is. Uh, and no, I think this is something really important to understand is that when it comes to decision making, uh, we're all just addled with bias. Uh, This is really, you know, Danny Kahneman's point, right? So I think that just understand, like, I'm also bad at it, too. And many of the things that I've quit, I've actually quit too late. Hmm. But I think my journey starts with actually uh, an act of what I call forced quitting. I actually do talk about this in the book, where sometimes we're quitting voluntarily, right? Like we're choosing to leave our job or we're choosing to abandon beliefs that we have or leave a relationship or, you know, stop running a race or whatever. And we do it voluntarily. Sometimes it's forced upon us. So that would be like if you're fired, you're forced to quit. If somebody breaks up with you, you're forced to quit. So in my case, I was really forced to quit graduate school, at least take a year leave because I got sick. And during that year, I actually obviously had to start exploring other ways to make money because I wasn't in graduate school. And that's actually when I landed in poker. And I think that this happens to people who are forced into those situations, which feels so scary, right? To have something taken away from you like that. And then to sort of find out, ooh, I found something really cool that I really love in that kind of exploration mode, that exploratory journey that I had to take to go find out what I wanted to do. And I I feel a little bit like I kind of took that lesson with me, I think. And so uh, while I was playing poker, I got asked to speak to a group of 
finan- of, of people in the financial world about how poker might inform risk. So this was pretty early into my poker career. And I decided to do it. And I, I actually, I talked about this intersection between cognitive science and poker and started thinking about how those two disciplines really had a very interesting conversation with each other. And so I did that in parallel. So that's another thing is sometimes you don't have to quit to do more than one thing. And that's what I went to, to go when I quit poker is that I already had this career consulting, speaking, so on and so forth. And then I quit because I wanted to free up a bunch of time to write these books. So I, I just think that maybe I'm not so scared of it. So poker is, is, is a great frame for thinking about this because there are so many decisions about when to quit, both on a micro mm. scale within a given hand and then, you know, a session, you know, am, am I not, am I just not playing well today? Do I need to quit today? And all the way up to, you know, should I, should I stop being a should professional poker player altogether? Yeah. altogether? Uh, so I guess, and, and then you also, that, that allows you to discuss in the book certain strategies to, to make better decisions about quitting. And one of those is basically you set rules in advance. You decide, you know, if I am at this point, point and I have achieved this, I'll keep going. And if I haven't achieved this, I will quit. Can you talk through a little bit what those rules look like in practice, starting within the poker setting itself? What do you, how do you use rules to keep yourself accountable? Yeah, absolutely. So so just to be clear, folding is quitting. Some quitting goes under the category of loss cutting. And mm-hmm. that's what folding is. It's, it's cutting your losses so that you don't incur more uh, in a situation that's bad. It's an incredibly important skill in poker. And uh, actually, if I were to think about what it is that really separates elite players from, you know, amateurs, it's really that skill of being able to cut your losses. And the reason is that our tendency is to hang on to hands too long. So you'll hear amateurs say things like, I had to protect the money that was already in the pot. Well, that's not really true. What matters is that the next dollar you bet worthwhile, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just needed to see what happened, which is not a money-making strategy. That's a key observation here in this book, that a reason that people don't quit is that in many situations, you don't know how it would have worked out if you had kept going when you quit. Whereas if you keep going, you learn whether or not it was going to work. You'll know for sure. And that's that's very tempting. People want that certainty. But I mean, poker is obviously is is a game of managing uncertainty and so many things in life are like that. So part of it is you have to become comfortable with quitting and then not knowing for sure whether you would have actually been better off if you had persevered. Yeah, that temptation to get to certainty is so powerful because we think about quitting as failing. We, we think if you quit, you're a loser. But just like in poker where you're starting, where you haven't seen hardly any of the cards and you don't know where your opponents have and you discover a whole bunch of information after you start playing the hand, that's true of all decision-making. Think about like the decision to hire someone. What do you really know about the person, right? I mean, you just don't know anything. So you're going to discover a whole bunch of things after the fact. In that case, when you discover that new information, if you quit because you discover something new, it's not failing, but we think about it as failing. And not only do we think about it as failing, but we think other people will think that we failed. And that happens like even in a poker hand, when you fold, there's a little bit of embarrassment, right? Particularly if you were like, I raised, or if you were bluffing or something, and then someone bets into you and you fold, and there's that moment of like, oh no, people are going to think that I played the hand poorly. And so Mm -hmm. what we want to do is get to 100% certainty before we're willing to quit. But 100% certainty is already like 95% dead or maybe all the way dead. And you wanna sort of get to that decision beforehand. So in terms of strategies to deal with this, the thing that we need to realize, and this is first and foremost, right, is that we have the, and Josh, you can tell me if you share this intuition. We mm-hmm. have this intuition that if I start something and then I start to get signals that things are going poorly, I will pay attention to those and then I will react to those in some rational way. Like if I'm climbing a mountain and a snowstorm comes in, I'll stop climbing. Right. If I take a job and you know it turns out that my direct report is toxic, 
then I'll, I'll go find another job or, you know, relationships. Or if I'm running a race and my break, I break my leg, obviously I'll stop. I assume mm-hmm. you share that in- intuition. Sure. And I think at a level of ab- abstraction, everybody shares that intuition, but then it's the difficulty of actually recognizing in the situation that the information has changed such that you're correct to give up. It, it's actually worse than that. It's not so much the difficulty of recognizing it. It's that it turns out, and there's decades of science that show this, that when you're getting bad news, it's not even that you don't notice it. It's not even that you you notice it, it but you just sort of don't know what to do about it. It's that you escalate your commitment to the cause. Hmm. Your feet get more stuck. How do you break that cycle? Because I mean, again, thinking about a poker hand and listeners will will vary in terms of whether they play poker or not. But I mean, if if you're playing Texas Hold'em, which is the game people will typically have seen on television, everyone gets two cards of their own and they bet on those. And then there are three cards dealt in the middle and you bet again. And then a fourth card and you bet and a fifth card and you bet again. So all sorts of new information. Right. And and as you, you describe in the book that an advanced player will play, you know, maybe f- between 15 and 25 percent of their hands and they'll fold before they've even seen the flop about three quarters of the time. A novice player might play as many as half the hands and they lose a or lot of over. money for that yeah. for that reason. And so the, you can address that by coming up with rules that are specific about, you know, when if I get this hand before the flop, I'm going to fold it every time or I'm going to fold mm-hmm. it if I'm sitting too far away from the dealer. You can you can even make a chart. And there are circumstances where there you should Vary that. Right. Um, But the thing is that once you have decided to play the hand and then cards come down on the flop, the situations are a lot more complicated. It doesn't lend themselves to a chart. I think it's it's more like decision making in real life where there's so much information available that you can't come up with or especially a novice player can't have a simple rule in advance about exactly what to do in every situation. Yeah. And that, I think, makes it easier to convince yourself that this time is different, that there's something about this circumstance that justifies staying in the hand. So how do you how do people make better decisions in those situations where they can't just set out a really simple rule ahead of time about when they're going to fold. Okay. So first of all, not when I was playing, but now every point in the hand, there's a chart for it. It's called game theory, optimal play. I'm glad I'm not playing now because I don't want to memorize all those charts. (laughs) Um, There's three strategies that we can do to help with our quitting behavior because the problem is, and that's why I sort of mentioned that intuition is that you can't rely on yourself to be able to actually react rationally in the moment. It's kind of like trying to eat healthy with an open box of chocolates in front of you. It's just too mm. hard to do. Yeah. So um, there's three main strategies. One is kind of rule setting, uh, what we call kill criteria, imagining what the signals are that I might see in the future that would tell me that I ought to walk away, which we can talk about. The other is to get somebody else to help you with it, uh, which is just a quitting coach, right? Like fine, that would be like a mentor. A therapist could be a quitting coach. You know, a friend who you really trust could be a quitting coach, a colleague. And then the last strategy is to approach things that you start in a way that's going to specifically get you the information you know very quickly about whether you ought to continue. So those are the three kind of main strategies. So let's think about strategy one, because this more goes in the rule setting Mm -hmm. category. So we know that if there are signals that things are going poorly, I'm not going to be good at noticing them in the moment. And I'm probably, if I do, when I do notice them, I'm going to double down or I'm going to rationalize them away or this kind of thing. So what I want to do then is when I start something, at the moment that I start something, recognizing that it's really uncertain, I'm going to learn all sorts of new things after the fact. I want to think about what are the new things I could learn that would tell me I should walk away now. 
right? So uh, these would be called kill criteria. So I'll give you a simple example in poker of a kill criteria is a loss limit. And, mm-hmm. you know, people who are retail investors have these as well, that if I lose a certain amount of money in the game, then I will get up and walk away for the reason that if I were perfectly rational, I could just completely objectively figure out, was I losing because I was getting unlucky or was I losing because I was actually not playing well or not playing well in comparison to my opponents? Mm-hmm. So we sort of would like to think that we're capable of doing that, but we're not. So what I do is I say, you know what can happen? When I'm losing a lot of money, I start to become very bad at that particular judgment. So in advance, I'm going to decide that this is exactly how much money I'm willing to lose in this game. And if I lose more, you know, I need more, I'm, I'm going to just walk away. Okay, so I can set that in stone. I can also set like, I know that after six to eight hours, I don't play well. So I'm going to play only six to eight hours, and then that's going to cause me to quit. In the middle of hands, you can set these kill criteria. So I, I, this is how I used to play, is I would plan some sort of play. Like I would say, uh, this person bet, I'm going to call them even though I don't have a good hand, because I'm going to wait to see what they do on the next card. And if they bet into me, then I'm going to raise them, mm-hmm. right? So, so I would actually plan that out. And then I would say, but if they check to me, I'm actually going to check and try to bluff on the next street. Or if they bet and I raise and they re-raise me, then I'll fold, right? So mm-hmm. you're you're thinking about all of those things in advance. You're actually planning that out in advance. So you're thinking about what they could be doing that would cause you to abandon the hand, right? So sometimes you'll call with a weak hand. If they bet again, you say, oh, I actually don't think I, I'm just going to fold here. So you're, you're just thinking those through already. And these types of kill criteria are incredibly useful in kind of every walk of life, whether it's investing or I've worked with sellers to for them to think, think about the criteria that can happen in the first or second or third meeting with a potential client as to what would make them walk away from the deal. You can actually set these out for like new relationships, right? <laughs> what are the behaviors you could see that would really make you say, I should stop early? Yeah, I was, I was a little thrown by your description in the book about setting kill criteria for relationships, sort of setting drop-dead dates about, like, you should be engaged by this point, and, and if not, then... Well, only if that's your value. Right. Well, but I guess that's the... Does this really translate to interpersonal relationships like that, where it's there are such intangibles about love and, and feeling? Do, you, do, do people really yes. make better decisions with the green eyeshade far in advance than in the moment? Yeah. So this is a thing that I get a lot, you know, and I think that people think that relationships are somehow in a special category. So first of all, let me ask you this. Have you ever had any friends or yourself who've been in a relationship where it's very clear to you that they've been in that relationship way too long and it's going horrible? Oh, absolutely. Right. And they're coming to you and they're talking to you about how horrible it is and saying, I should really break up with them. And then they go off and six months later, you have the exact same conversation with them. And you're like, why are you still there? I mean, this is why kill criteria are so important, right? Because at that moment that they come to you, and this would include a quitting coach, right? So you could be their quitting coach. And they say, this is really going horrible. I'm so miserable, blah, blah, blah. You can say to them, okay, so maybe you think you can turn it around. What does turning it around look like? What what do you expect to see in terms of the way that you feel? What do you expect to see in terms of how your partner is now behaving? What are the inputs into turning it around? Say therapy. Right. So you can think about what are the things that I would need to do in order to try to get there and then say, I'm going to talk to you. Let's meet again in six months or let's meet however long you think this situation is tolerable. And let's talk about whether things are actually going in the right direction at that point. Because the thing is that relationships are only in a special category in the sense that that they tend to be more uncertain. 
we have less practice at those decisions, right? So we, when we marry mm-hmm. someone, you know, the first time, we've never done it before. And more of that worry about like the feeling of failure and what's on the other side. And we have this huge ambiguity aversion, like what if I never find somebody else? And then we also have this really big issue that I think comes up in relationships, which is what if I break up with them and then the next person I'm with also, it doesn't work out. Right. But what we have to remember is that, but if the thing you're doing now is making you miserable, then yeah, maybe the, a new thing isn't going to work out, but maybe it will. And that's better than not. But we don't treat those identically. We're more worried about a bad outcome from the switch, or we're more worried about wandering into the wilderness and not finding what we want so that we end up sticking in a bad situation. You have examples of this in, in the book, not not just relationship ones, but also career ones, where it's basically people realizing, you know, that they're grappling with the uncertainty of, of leaving what they're doing now and trying something else, and they don't know whether or not that will make them happy. And you sort of describe one thing is that people can figure out the thing that they're doing now is making them unhappy, and there's no uncertainty there. They will be unhappy if they keep doing what they're yeah. doing. And that makes the decision easy. But that, that makes the decision easy in part because on one side of the equation, there is no uncertainty. You're comparing something that you know is a bad outcome to something that only might be a, a bad outcome. But I, going back to the interpersonal relationships, I'm uh, yeah, obviously, if, if your relationship is making you absolutely miserable and there's no good indication that that's likely to change anytime soon, that's an excellent reason to leave. But if you had a different vision of what you thought would make you happy, I mean, when you set that kill criteria that's basically, you know, if I'm not engaged by this date, I'm going to break up. You might be happy with something different than you thought was what was going to make you happy. That's the value question. Right. So I just want to be very clear about that, right? The example that I give in the book about that is, so you've been in the relationship for a while. If we start dating, I'm not going to set a kill criteria for the day that we're supposed to get engaged. I don't have enough information to be able to do that. So you're doing that along the way. So now let's say we've been dating. We, Josh, we've been in a lovely, happy relationship for a year <laughs> and a half. And I'm of an age where like put up or shut up. Okay. Okay. So my time, my time is very valuable. I have a, you know, I, maybe I want to have children and, and my biological clock is ticking on me and I really want to settle down. And this is something that's very important to me. I'm not 20, I'm 35. Okay. And we've been dating for a year and a half and I'm like, but you know, the thing is that I'm not going to be happy with just continuing to date and just sort of going on like that. What I need is someone who's willing to commit to me, either as a marriage or enough of a long-term commitment where I feel comfortable, say, having a child with you. Okay. Right. So this, I've decided what my values are. What I say is how long, how long am I willing to wait? And then I can communicate that to you. So what the kill criteria are that you set out at the beginning, number one, are going to be different than what you might then set, because you have to keep revisiting them as you get new information, mm-hmm. right? And as your values might change. So another example would be, I might take a job in my early 20s that's, you know, where I'm fine working 80 hours a week. But then as I reevaluate those things, I may discover as maybe I have a family or something like that, that 80 hours a week is like unsustainable for me. And then I can set some kill criteria, which is like, if I can't get my hours reduced because it's impinging on my ability to spend time with my family, then I have to quit. And what would I need to do in order to be able to get my hours reduced, right? So then it, it creates action where you actually go talk to somebody. You know, the thing about matters of the heart, I had this conversation with somebody where they said, you know, I, I talk about the fact that all decisions are forecasts and it's expected value. Are you going to win or lose to it? And 
this is true whether you're taking a job or, or thinking about a partner, a job just being something you, you're likely going to repeat a little bit more than right. a partner. But, you know, similar types of decisions, really. It's just one feels different because we sort of think of the matters of the heart as a separate category. And they said, but, you know, expected value doesn't apply to, like, marriage. Hmm. And my answer, we, you know, an expected value, just a forecast of do the benefits outweigh the cost? Am I going to be happier than not compared to other options that I might have? That's all that it is. And I said, well, if it doesn't apply, why don't you just marry someone random off the street? <laughs> and they were like, what? You know, and, and that's the thing that I'm trying to get across is that I know that these things feel different. But the fact is that when you are deciding who to marry, when you are deciding who to get in a committed relationship with, when you're deciding who to go to on a date with because you're on Hinge or whatever, it is an expected value equation. Like, do I think there's a high enough likelihood, given the time that I'm going to have to spend, right, like in the date or whatever, that this is going to be fun, that there are going to be good things that come out of this? That's why sometimes you swipe right and sometimes you swipe left. That's a very quick decision about that, right? So we need to start realizing like, it's okay to think about it this way. It's not like thinking about it in some kind of structured way takes the magic out of it. All it does is first of all, stop us from getting stuck in things because what's the magic in being in a relationship that isn't getting you what you want or need, right? Which is preventing you from being able to go get in a relationship that will, there's no magic in that, right? And you can create more magic by thinking about this because it makes you think about the inputs. What are the things I need to do to get me to where I want to go instead of just kind of riding along the status quo, which is a super comfortable place for us. We live there all the time and it creates a bias against quitting. How do you think about option value? I mean, one of the one oh of the reasons gosh. that yeah. that people don't quit is that it very often it's a situation where it's like if I don't quit today, I can quit tomorrow. But if I quit today, I can't unquit tomorrow. I mean, that's that's a compelling reason not to quit in many circumstances, right? Option value is important. Yeah. So first of all, actually, so we we over index on I can't unquit tomorrow because a lot of times you can unquit tomorrow. Okay. So first of all, just really think about that because we convince ourselves that we can't go back to things all the time, but we actually can. I mean, I'm back in graduate school. So the interesting thing is that poker, I mean, part of what's why the structure of poker is useful here is that you can't unfold a hand. Yeah. So those are all situations where it's. I mean, obviously you can play the next hand, you can get up from the table, and you can come back. But those are situations where where quitting is final, and the the option value is only maintained by staying in. But yeah, I, I take your point that a lot of situations in life are more complicated. Yeah, a lot of situations you can go back, uh, even some jobs, right? Relationships, yeah. you can sometimes go back to those. You can, people unbreak up all the time. So we're overrating option value is one we're, thing. Well, and we're th and we want to also think about the option to do everything else. So we have to understand there's not just the option of, you know, if I stay in my job, I have the option to continue tomorrow, which gets into some very bad slippery slope stuff, right? That can cause us to stick in situations where we're not. That's why I'm saying just, I agree with you, right? Like, okay, I have the option to decide tomorrow, but you have to set a deadline. That's what I'm saying. Right. And the deadline can either be an actual deadline, right? Or it can be, if I see these things, I'll quit, right? So uh, that would be like a loss limit, right? There's no deadline. It's just if I lose a certain amount of money, I'm going to quit. If I'm at a certain place on a mountain, I have to turn around, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's okay. But we also have to remember that when we're doing something, in other words, so we're exercising the option to continue every single day. 
which we don't think about, right? With the status quo, we don't think about that as the option to start again tomorrow, right? But it is. We're exercising that option every day, but what that's preventing us from doing is exercising all the other options that we have. So when you think about that cost, that actually often very much outweighs you know, what we might be giving up in terms of the option to do the thing we're doing today. So that's really important to remember is that it's not just the option value of the thing we're doing. It's the option value of every other opportunity that we might have. And that's where it gets really, really problematic for us because, you know, part of the problem that we have is that we think if we quit, we're going to stop our progress mm-hmm. or at least really slow us down, right? Toward whatever our overall goals are, happiness, right? But it's not true if the thing you're doing isn't worthwhile. If the thing you're doing is no longer worth it, right? Or you thought it was worth it and then you started it and you figured out it wasn't because the world told you so. Then not exercising the option to quit that, to go exercise the option for all the other things that you could do, that is now what's going to slow you down. The trick is in figuring out, is the thing I'm doing worthwhile or not? So just to be clear, I think that grit is an incredibly important characteristic. I actually consider myself to be an incredibly gritty person. You know, I finished a book. Anybody who does that is probably pretty gritty, right? Several books. Um, Several books. I think everybody should read Angela Duckworth's book. It's called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I am not anti-grit. What I am anti is grit is good, full stop. Grit Mm -hmm. is character, full stop. If you don't, you know, you got to stick to things because that's going to show that you've, you know, you got what it takes. And it's like, that's not true. If you just broke your leg in the middle of a marathon, you got, then you have to hobble away, not walk away. You have some interesting examples about this in the context of, of startup businesses, where this exact phenomenon becomes really important, that you have some venture-funded startup, and you have someone in charge of that who hopefully is a really good business leader who might do something really useful if given the right business opportunity, and that's why the, all this money is behind them. They have a bunch of employees who can make a lot of money doing various things, and they have investors who put valuable capital behind them. And you sort of talk about that people, they, they don't fold the businesses soon enough when it becomes clear that the business is not going to work out. And And one of the reasons that's so costly is just the fact that all of those people could be doing other things that might end up being really valuable if they don't waste every last bit of that money and spend more time than they needed to on the thing that they should have, that they had enough information to figure out that it wasn't going to pan out. So how how can they do better at that? Because obviously, you know, you, most startups fail. There's a, phase of it where you need to stick through something where a lot of people would look at it and say, this probably isn't going to work. So how do you figure out when you've passed that point where it's the time to cut those losses and redeploy those valuable resources? Because that's such a high stakes decision. Yeah. So here's the great thing. There are other founders who've been there, done that. I assume you have investors. Those investors have very large portfolios of companies that they've invested in. They've seen it. And this is where like expertise becomes really important because Obviously, in the startup world, you're being a contrarian. You're saying that you see something that other people don't see. So the value of your investors is that they saw it along with you because they invested in you. So going to them to say, is this just a rough patch, right? Or, you know, is this a situation where I really need to walk away? They're going to be incredibly helpful. So this this brings in that combination of kill criteria with a quitting coach. So Ron Mm -hmm. Conway, who was the founder of SB Angel, probably the most successful angel investor in, in history. I talked to him and, and the interesting thing about him, despite all of his amazing successes, is that the thing he prides himself most on is getting founders to shut their businesses down. 
Now, he's invested in, in incredibly successful businesses where he's seeing them really early, right? So he knows how to help people get through it. He knows how to help them grit it out. But as he says, founders are naturally gritty, right? Like their bias is towards sticking it out. So that's why he prides himself on getting them to actually shut it down. Because as he says, life's too short, right? So we have all these options, you know, for things that we could do with our time. And we have very limited time. And these people are brilliant. And the thing that he says is life's too short to work as hard as you are on something that isn't going to go anywhere. You need to free that time up to be able to go do something great. So he'll come to them and he'll say, you know, look, you know, revenue isn't looking great. It looks like you're not achieving product market fit, you know, so on and so forth, whatever. I'll have that conversation with them. And they inevitably say, but I know I can turn it around. Just like your friend who's in the relationship. Things mm-hmm. are going really bad, like, but I got to stick it out because I've put so much time and effort and into this and my heart and soul into this relationship. So if I walk away, I will have wasted all of my time, which is a backward way to think about it. We want to think about that forward, but that's what founders do as well, because those are their babies. And here's the trick that Ron Conway does. He agrees with them. Okay, I know you can turn it around. All right, so let's talk about, let's say, the end of the next quarter. What does turn it around look like? Like, let's let's sit down together and figure out, like, I know you can do it because you're brilliant. What does turn it around look like? And they sit down and they set those benchmarks, right? Like, here's what we're going to get in new revenue. Uh, here's what customers are going to be telling you. Here's far, how far along you are going to be in product development, whatever it is. They work those out and then they make an agreement to come back and revisit in three months. And if they haven't hit the benchmarks, it's time to return the capital to the investors. And he said, so that will get them there. But then they always do this. But what about my employees? Right. So I owe it to my employees to keep going. And this is the really big insight. And this shows you how much we're able to rationalize these things, because once he explains it this way, it's totally obvious that that's a rationalization, because what he says to them is your employees lives are short also. Right. And they are working for very little cash compensation, mostly for equity. And you have now determined that that equity is not worth their while. And these people are brilliant and they deserve to go work on something that is going to change the world where their equity is going to be worth it. And so the day that you figure out the equity isn't worth it is the day that you should let them go. Right. So but we say like we need to owe it to our employees. That's not true. What that what we're really saying is I need the world to know that I had no other choice. That's what you're really saying. And it goes back to that need for certainty, right? They'll say, Mm -hmm. I owe it to my investors to keep going. No, you don't. You owe it to your investors to return the capital when you realize that that equity isn't worthwhile and then they can invest it in other great things. But they're so worried like that they'll be viewed as a failure or someone who was weak-willed or or gave up in the middle of it that they want to keep going until there is no capital left, until their employees have grinded out two years in a startup that was going to go nowhere so that everybody knows that they had no choice. And he's trying to say, like, if you know now, don't spend the extra year and a half. And it, and it's not just your own resources that you're that you're wasting. It's sort of the right. set of obligations that you have both to the employees and to the investors to, to allocate everybody's resources. It, it's, it, it's, it's interesting how you describe that people sort of manage to get that exactly backwards in their heads. They think they're doing people a favor uh, when, in fact, that that's that's harmful to them. It's very harmful to them. And and it shows you like the mental gymnastics that we're able to do because we want to get to certainty. Right. We we want to be 95% dead already, right? So what you're doing is you're bringing people along with you and trapping them in a bad situation where you've determined that, that it's not worth their time. You talk in the book about how people's identities 
become mm. uh, an impediment to quitting when they should quit. And, and there's there's a couple of ways that, that this arises. One is when your identity is so bound up in a certain thing that you do, whether that's athletes who, who don't want to quit because that's what they know of themselves. I'm a figure skater, I'm a boxer, or businesses, you know, Sears, I am a retailer, and you hold on to a dying business instead of pivoting into other aspects that you have that work better. And then there's also the, the identity aspect of just not being a quitter, the idea that, you know, I'm someone who sticks to things that I'm doing and it threatens my self-conception if I quit this. How do you address that? I mean, that's obviously very deep in, in people's psyches. Yeah. Is there a way to avoid that identity <laughs> commitment? Because presumably there are also upsides to having a strong sense of self and, and, and knowing what you do. There are situations where that will serve you well. I think it's great to have strong identity, you know, to know who you are, to know what you want, to know what your values are. But uh, I mean, it's kind of like the grit thing, right? Like the upside to grit is it gets to you to stick to really hard things that are worthwhile. The downside is it gets you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile. So <laughs> what we have to remember is whether it goals, goals or identity or whatever, there are upsides and downsides to it. And the, you know, the problem with that, with the identity piece is that the, really the hardest thing to quit is who you are. And we, even when you get signals, if you've got a stake in the ground, like this is who I am, like uh, I'm an athlete and then you keep going and whatever, that it, it really causes you to be sticky. And, and the, the issue that we have to think about, and, and this has to do with quitting beliefs, because those are other things that we can quit. So we can talk about Sears not shutting down its, its retail business, right? So that's one form of the way that identity can get in the way. So Sears also was a financial services company. They owned all state insurance for Sake. Like, I mean, my God, right? Yeah. And uh, they sold all state insurance to try to save a failing retail business, you know, in the 90s, which seems nuts, but it's because they were a retailer. Okay, so that's like in that case. But then we also need to think about the way that it, it affects like our identities in terms of our belief systems. And in particular, we have to be really careful when we have a stake in the ground on a belief that is extreme, that is okay. out of the mainstream. Because Josh, you, you, I'm sure at some point in your life you believe that Pluto was a planet. Yeah. Along with every other person. That's what I was told. Yeah, but everybody yeah. believed it, right? So right. it's not part of your identity that you believe that Pluto was a planet. So then when they correct you and say, oh, by the way, Pluto's not a planet, you're like, whatever. Okay. Right. <laughs> and you abandon that belief and you change it. But what happens when you're like a flat earther? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you're you're saying something that's very much out of the mainstream. So there's a wonderful study that that shows this problem, which is so Leon Festinger, one of the greats in psychology in the 1950s, noticed a little newspaper clipping about a cult called the Seekers, and the Seekers believe that there there's this planet Clarion and the aliens were going to come and like destroy the Earth in a flood, but uh, the people in the Seekers who were the true believers were going to get come and taken away by the aliens and, and saved. Okay, so uh, they had a doomsday. That's the thing about a doomsday cult is there is a date and that date was December 20th, 1954, I think. So he infiltrated the cult with some colleagues so that because his question was, you have this nutty belief system. What happens when the date comes? There's incontrovertible proof now. No aliens. Right. Do you abandon the beliefs, right? So they infiltrate, they're there, it's midnight, you know, the clock times midnight, no aliens. And what was interesting was most of the people, all but two, stayed in the cult. And not only did they stay in the cult, their beliefs became more extreme. They became more committed 
to the belief system, things like, you know, well, we pray, we, we were such true believers, they didn't come or, or they changed the date of, I mean, it was a bunch of different types of mental gymnastics that you can imagine. And this, this is really part of the problem is that we, we think that if you have some sort of belief system where there's clear proof that your belief system is incorrect, that we are going to quit that belief and change our mind. But we do the opposite, right? We really escalate our commitment to the cause. And that that's where we have to think about identity. So how do you overcome that? So in this particular case, it's a little bit difficult. So one of them, um, again, you have to have kill criteria. So there's a difference between the aliens not coming and you reacting to that in the moment and you making a commitment, particularly a public one, it's a public one that says, I believe in this. I really believe in Marianne Keach, who is the person who was the head of the Seekers. I really believe in her. But if the aliens don't come on the 20th, I will walk away. And you have to kind of make those declarations in advance. If I see these kinds of things in the future, then I will walk away. And it's particularly powerful if you do that where you have somebody else that you're making that declaration to that is going to then hold you accountable to it. But the thing that I have to tell you, and this is what's really important to understand about all things quitting, is that you're gonna be pretty bad at it. It's really hard. (laughs) What we're trying to do is be better at it. So let's say that we can save one more person from the cult. Isn't that better, right? Right. So that's the thing that we need to recognize is two people walked away, maybe three would have, if we had put these things in place. And, And it's the same thing with poker. Like I had a loss limit, but I didn't always follow it but I followed it more. There are right. turnaround times on Everest, which tell you when you're supposed to turn around. Mostly people don't follow it, but like in 1996, the disastrous year chronicled in Into Thin Air, three people did. And so three more people didn't put themselves in that kind of danger than otherwise would have because there was a turnaround time. And that's what we have to be accepting of. Right, you describe in the book that you know the the these three people deciding at a, their turnaround time was one p.m. at eleven thirty a.m. They are so far away from the summit, and they can see the conditions ahead of them. And this incompetent group of climbers that's blocking their way, they know they're not going to make it to the summit by one. So they turn around at eleven thirty, and they get back to base camp, and they're safe. And you're like, this is kind of a boring story. And no one remembers them. Nobody remembers them because they're the ones. They're not the heroes of the story. But they're the ones who 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 handled that correctly. I want to talk about one more uh, strategy that, that we haven't talked about yet, which has to do with the monkeys and the pedestals. Yeah, that's the third strategy. Yeah. Right. And so it's basically this idea that, you know, if, if you have if you're doing some complex thing and some parts of it are going to be hard and some parts of it are going to be easy, you need to tackle the hard parts first. Figure out, can you teach the monkeys to what is it? They dance on the pedestal. I forget the exact nature of the, the metaphor. So let me just say this comes from Astro Teller, who's CEO and captain of Moonshots at X, which is the in-house innovation hub. Imagine you're trying to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal. Don't build the pedestal first. Right. Try to teach the monkey first. And if you... Because otherwise, what's the point? Right. And so you talk about this in context of the the California High-Speed Rail Project. Ugh, um, yes. Which, uh, you know, the, in 2008, the California voters approved a bond measure of, I believe it was $9 billion, and the thing was supposed to cost $33 billion and start operating in 2020. And of course, the it's not operating yet, and the project budget is now over $100 billion. And 
the geography of California, this line that's supposed to go from San Francisco to Los Angeles, there are two mountain passes that need that they need tunnels under through seismically active areas. It's a very expensive and challenging uh, engineering project. And if you can't get those done, you're not going to be able to build the rail line from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And so what have the, the geniuses behind California high-speed rail done? Uh, they've started by building a line from Modesto to, to Bakersfield, or it's uh, Merced to Bakersfield. They started with Madeira to Fresno. Yeah. So it's in the Central Valley. So before they had recognized that the mountains were an issue. So that's when they thought the budget was going to be $33 billion. Before they realized California was mountainous. <laughs> right. And this is the reason, what, this is the problem with monkeys and pedestals, right? It, this is why you need to do this. Because if you were to say, what are the monkeys? What are the hardest parts of the project first? Automatically, you'd say the monkeys. But they didn't do this. They just were like, where should we start building? Well, we'll build on flat land. Now, that is a pedestal in the sense that you already know you can build track there. That section of track is like a done deal, like you can get to it any time. So sometime around 2016, I think, they sort of go, ooh, wait, there's mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, okay, so now the budget explodes, the projection for the budget at that point explodes to 80 billion, but they say that even that's uncertain. Right? So it goes to 80 billion, it goes to Newsom, in 2018, who now has the opportunity to, to do one of two things. He could shut it down or he could say, we're not doing anything else until we have a feasibility study on the mountains. Okay, So he could do that. Instead, he says, oh, pff, mountains, mountains, let's build track from Bakersfield to Merced, which is to the north of the, the mountain range. That's the problem. And then he said, and then we're, and we're done with that. What we'll do is we'll build track between San Francisco and Silicon Valley, which is to the, again, to the north of the Diablo range. So they're building around. Right. So basically you're going to have these two gaps. You're going to have like the, the, the line's going to go from about a hundred miles away from, from San Francisco to about a hundred miles away from LA. But in order to close those gaps, you have to build these massively expensive and complex things that we're not sure whether they can even execute. And if they don't, we're going to be left with this white elephant rail line that just runs through the central Valley and does not serve the large markets that it needs to. And so you, you, you describe this as, you know, as, as an, as an error of doing the doing the wrong parts first. I think that this is this is intentional. I think basically it's a strategy by policymakers who would like this project to be built at any cost, but they knew that they couldn't go to voters up front and ask them for $100 billion. The idea is, well, let's let's get shovels in the ground and let's start building something. And if we start building something, then it will be politically necessary to finish the project no matter how much it costs. So I think that, you know, the I think the that certain people are making cognitive errors in here, but I'm not sure the project proponents are. I think they kind of know exactly what they're doing. And this is the strategy to get the immense amount of money thrown at these tunnels under the under the mountains built at, at some point, who know, God knows when. I can't possibly disagree with you because I don't know. There's no question that you could use this for evil purposes. Sunk cost is incredibly powerful. The idea of, well, we can't stop now because we'll have wasted the taxpayer's money is mm-hmm. a very powerful reason to continue. A wrong reason because that money's already gone. I don't want you to waste my next dollar on something right. that's dumb. And could you pervert that and use that in a way to create a lot of pork? I don't disagree. But what I will tell you is that uh, it's it, this also has just recently happened when it's not a government project, when it's a when it's a company that is trying to actually maximize the number of dollars that they make, and it's virgin. One of the examples that I give of applying met- monkeys to pedestals to a project that happened at X was they got pitched the Hyperloop. I'm sorry, describe what X is? X is the in-house innovation t- hub at Google. 
Waymo and whatnot. Um, that's all from them. So, uh, so anyway, they got pitched the Hyperloop, which is, you know, the trains that are going to shoot you in like pneumatic tubes or whatever, and, you know, get you from New York to LA and a couple of, right. you know, a couple hours. So they got pitched it. The folks over there then applied monkeys and pedestals to it. And they said, well, okay, what are the monkeys? Because those that's the stuff that we want to do first. And notice that for most projects, what people do is what they did with the bullet train, purposeful or not, which is they attack the low-hanging fruit first. But there's no point in doing that if you haven't figured out if you can solve the problem. So they realized there were kind of two problems. Uh, problem number one was regulatory. Any train that you built was going to have to go through lots and lots of municipalities and towns and whatever that all had different regulations, and that that was going to be like a really big, massive undertaking. And as Astro Teller said, we're Peter Pans with PhDs. Like we're not, we don't know about regulation. So that seems like not something that's up our alley, but like maybe we could solve that. But then there were the other monkey was that in order to really understand, like they understood that they could get the thing to go really fast. The thing they were worried about is, can we get it to stop Mm -hmm. in a way that's safe for the passengers? So this is actually a quite a big monkey. And what they said was, okay, but the problem is that in order for us to actually find out the answer to that, we basically have to build the whole thing because we have to get the thing up to full speed before we can figure out that we, we can stop it safely. Okay. So they said, no thanks for us because these monkeys are too intractable. We don't, we don't like to do things where you have to build the whole thing, the whole pedestal before you figure out if you can stick the monkey on top of it, juggling the flaming torches. So they said, no, thank you. And it took them 15 minutes, 15 minutes (laughs) to figure out this isn't something we should do. Well, now Virgin ended up doing it. And there was just an article in the New York Times the other day that said, ready for this. The, The Hyperloop is running into really big problems because they've built enough track to get it up to one sixth of the speed and had people ride on it on one sixth of the speed, which they're considering to be a safety test, but isn't really. Uh And now they're running into all of these regulatory issues with different municipalities, and they don't know if they're ever actually gonna be able to complete it and do it. So there's a case where you can't say they're doing that on purpose. Right. Oh no, right. It's just one company did monkeys and pedestals, the other didn't. And you can see that they've now spent a whole bunch of money and now it looks like that thing's running into a dead end. And, and then the last thing I want to talk about is jumping the shark. Um, and this, <laughs> yeah. so first of all, I mean, everyone knows this phrase and it's about something that, you know, used to be good and then they ran out of ideas and it's not good anymore. Can you describe where, where the phrase actually comes from? So it comes from happy days, which, uh, I'm sure you have listeners who don't know what happy days is, <laughs> but I know, I, I know what happy days is. Big sitcom of the 1970s. Of the 1970s. It starred Ron Howard. I think it went into the eighties. I'm not sure yes. I stopped watching yeah. after that, but it starred Ron Howard, Henry Winkler. So Henry Winkler was the Fonz. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Ron Howard um, was like kind of the the sort of nerdier 50s kid with the Fonz. Uh, and then uh, Ralph Malf <laughs> was his friend, whatever. It had like fun characters and there was a family. It was a very traditional sitcom and it was huge. So the thing with Fonzie was he was like way too cool for school. Mm-hmm. He always wore a leather jacket. And his hair was like greased back. And so he's very cool. So great show. And then one day there's an episode where um, some talent agents come to Milwaukee, which is where they live, and they spot the Fonz. (laughs) And they're like, oh, you know, you're going to be a star. So they all go out to California and they're now filming the Fonz on water skis 
wearing swimming trunks with his leather jacket on, skiing to go like evil Knievel style onto a ramp where he literally jumps over a shark. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple of people who were trying to you know, talk about when TV shows had kind of turned sour. And they were specifically talking about that particular episode of Happy Days, that that was the moment that that show went from good to bad and thus jumping the shark was born. And now it doesn't apply just to TV shows, but like sports figures and politicians and, you know, the day they jump the shark. I, the question I have is like, should you quit when you have jumped the shark? Because I mean, I, I went, I looked up the Happy Days ratings. And so this, the, the shark jump occurs in season five uh, in 1977. Season six of Happy Days that ran from 1978 to 79 was the fourth most watched show on television that year. So I like, as an artistic achievement, I'm sure that it was not as good as the earlier seasons, but Happy Days was presumably making a lot of money at that point, And there were a lot of people who were clearly enjoying watching it because it was the fourth best show on television. And so, I mean, one, one, I think, you know, jumping the shark means you're not as good as you once were. But very often, even when you're not as good as you once were at something, you're still good enough at it that it makes sense to continue doing it, right? Like, should they have canceled Happy Days? No, it depends on your values. Right. So Seinfeld quit before he jumped the shark because his values were that he didn't he didn't want to be around for the downslide, right? So for him, the money was not something that he valued as highly as the artistic achievement. So he quit. Barry Sanders, he quit before, you know, when he was at the top of his game, because for him, that was what he valued. He didn't want to be around for the downslide. So I think that this is what's really important is that when I talk about quitting and when you should quit, in no way, shape or form, am I saying anything prescriptive in the sense that I am going to tell you exactly when you should quit is if I know what your values are. What I'm going to do is tell you a structure. Think about what the things are that you value. And then given what you value, figure out if you, you've jumped the shark for what you value. Why don't we leave it there? Annie, thank you so much for joining me. And the book is really interesting. I recommend it to people. Again, the book is called Quit. And, and today is the release day. We're recording on the release day, which is October 4th. Uh, when you are hearing this podcast, the book is already out. Uh, Annie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Again, Annie Duke's book is called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and it's in bookstores now. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community and a very interesting and lively comments section. Uh, so please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and the newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast. It gets you every episode of the newsletter and it gets you access to those comments. We'd also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>